Listener Production. Shares. Market. The S&P. The ISX. Stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that has fended off a $900 million takeover offer just this week. I'm Scott Phillips from The Motley Fool. He is Andrew Page, Esquire, if you don't mind. The founder, the managing director, the chief cook and bottle washer at a thing called strawman.com. Mm-hmm. What, what is that there thing, Andrew? It's, we're, we're a private online investment oh, club. Oh, sure. But let me say this. Oh, if, we we're, if we're knocking away $900 million <laughs> offers... Can we can we get a new lawyer in or a, you know, like I'm holding out for more, mate. I'm holding out for more. <laughs> you got to run this. You got to let me run my eyes over these deals before you reject them, mate. I I was pretty sure I would have said yes to that. Oh, mate, can, can I say too? Speaking of uh, speaking of deals and offers, uh, I have to, I have mentioned this only because it's funny, not because it's actually in any way reasonable, relevant, or accurate. Uh, but uh, I did notice a, a website uh, during the week. I was sent a link by one of our member services fools. Uh, that we, so we, we publish this podcast through the listener, uh, in partnership with listener. Um, they're the kind of podcast arm of Southern Cross Osterio. Uh, they, there was this website that ranked the top listener podcasts. Guess who was number one? Yeah. No. Yeah. No. Motley really? Money. Number one listener podcast. Hey! Ahead of these two young blokes who maybe if they work really hard might have a future in podcasting and radio um hamish and andy apparently they're called i've never heard of them but no way I, clearly clearly subjectivity and, and clearly someone with reasonably ordinary judgment but yes just just for just for sheer amusement mate no one thinks we're a better podcast than hamish and andy uh, <laughs> but uh, but i thought that was it was just funny and i'm actually mentioning it not because we were named number one just because it was ridiculous that uh, hamish and andy weren't and, and so you know we'll take it and and thank you to those who made that decision but uh yes i'm I'm not sure we should take it to the bank. I'm surprised you didn't tell me that. That's the <laughs> first I'm hearing about. Yeah, no. literally, literally oh, wow. this week. I know it's kind of cool. I, I've got a, I've got a new intro. You know, when I speak, meet people for the first time, it's like yeah, <laughs> co-host of the top ranked podcast in Australia on the Listener Network. Exactly, it's got a nice ring to it. Well, as a, again, this is someone's subjective view. It's not. It's not by listener downloads. It's not by anything meaningful. It's not even by listener themselves. It was just someone's view of uh, they'd, they'd rank the top thirty listener podcasts, and we apparently, for reasons uh, best known to the people doing the website, uh, are number one. And I promise it wasn't my mother or your mother or anyone connected, as far as I know, with me. Certainly, if they did, they've kept it very quiet. Because uh, no. yes, just 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 don't completely. don't water it down, mate. I'm, I'm owning this. This is this is number one objective. <laughs> <laughs> Hamish, objectively and scientifically ranked. Hamish Andy one day will come good, and if and when they do, they might possibly be, uh, be contenders. But until then, uh, sucks to be them because uh, <clears throat> we're number one. Hamish Andy, well, and, 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 just, you know, and I'll, ju- I'll just say, if you come for the king, you best not miss. Is all <laughs> I'll say. <laughs> exactly. And if the boys want some tips, we can probably find some time in our day to help them learn how to be well, better well. podcasters. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yep. Speaking of which, uh, just to bring myself down a notch, uh, I did uh, the Good Oil with Scott Phillips, the other podcast that I do, and. Uh, uh, I did. I did. Um, uh, you should never look at the comments. And I did. I was. I was actually scrolling through to try and find an episode. Uh, just for reference, I was trying to send someone a link to the episode, and uh, I was called a gibber on that one. So, uh, so there you go. Just, just, so, just in case my head was getting a little bit too large on the basis of the first one being called a gibber. I think I, that person gonna be one star out of five. So they're, they're, they're not a big fan okay. of the podcast. Fair but that's enough. Okay, we'll, uh, we'll we'll work with what we've got. Not for everyone. Not for everyone. <laughs> Exactly, <laughs> or even a lot of people potentially, but um, yes. With that that said, let's not talk make it about us. Let's make it about our listeners, particularly mate, those with a mortgage. Um, by the way, we talk about that a lot. Um, the two things we don't, no, well, you and I don't, as we'll probably, probably do more than anybody else. We talk about mortgage rates, and I think um, it misses the saving rate for for those with mm-hmm. money. It also misses, to some degree. Um, those who, yes, they're mortgages, but they're mortgages often for small business people who are using uh, home, you know, line, loans of equity or just redraw or whatever to actually fund their business. A lot of businesses, small businesses have to put the family home up as, as collateral for business loans. Um, and I, not that it matters necessarily to better or worse than people borrowing it for their own, for their own uh, shelter. But I just thought it was worth kind of mentioning that when we talk about mortgage rates, we kind of, everyone thinks about the, the person with a couple of kids trying to pay off the, pay off the loan. And that's absolutely the majority. Um, but there are other implications for, for rates. All of that said, mm. Mm. last night, we were recording this on Thursday morning. Last night, US Fed kept rates on hold, uh, which apparently the market had expected, although two weeks ago, the market hadn't expected it and goes to, goes to show <laughs> yeah. how much the market knows. Uh, and of course, then it brings our decision here into stark relief. The IMF also saying during the week, that Australia should put up rates more quickly to, to get inflation under control more quickly. 
The thing I thought was interesting, mate, that kind of doesn't get talked about enough because it got passed over, uh, because rates are all anyone wants to talk about, was the IMF also said that we should stop spending on infrastructure to take some hmm. heat out of the economy. And mm -hmm. I kind of, so that I, I'll get you to talk about rates in a second, but I actually, I actually really appreciated that bit of nuance from the IMF. They're not necessarily right, you know, it's, they're, they're one body with their own views and ideologies and philosophies and all that kind of stuff. But in the context of an overheating economy, which is, you know, for all the people's concerns about what's happening to individual households right now, the reality is with unemployment at three and a half percent, we are at unprecedented capacity constraints. Doesn't mean it can't go lower, we can't find ways to do it. But the idea that full employment was four or four and a half percent was was that at some point we simply run up against capacity constraints. There are jobs and regions and businesses who can't find suitably qualified people because the unemployment um, cupboard is reasonably bare. Long-term unemployment now is down below 1%. So if you kind of do all this math and say, okay, well, most of the unemployment numbers are actually people rolling through that unemployment, not stuck there. Um, it's you know we are at we are at or very very near capacity constraints. I just I kind of liked the IMF saying actually there's other ways to skin this cat. You and I have talked a lot about government doing more to, to actually help out the RBI in terms of trying to cool the economy. But I actually thought infrastructure was a, was a good call from them because it's the sort of thing you can, in theory, uh, delay. Uh, you don't you're, you're potentially crowding out workers or businesses from the private sector who go into other things anyway. So it's not like there's no, you know, there's no alternative use for those workers. And it is one way you could actually take some heat out of the economy of that directly impacting potentially the spending um, ability of those who are otherwise be getting government benefits or government wages or paid by government for other things. So I just thought it was an interesting kind of take on something the government could do and reasonably quickly to actually help out in terms of cooling the economy. Yeah. No, I mean, we've, we've said many times that the fiscal side of the equation is completely neglected mm -hmm. and, and at odds with the uh, yeah. uh, stated objectives of, of the central bank. Yeah. So it's, it's, yeah, I get that. The nuance, though, for me is that, well, it depends, A, on the necessity yeah. of that infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Like there are some, <clears throat> there'd be some who would say that this is just desperately needed. Yeah. You know, it's going to break and we won't have it. Yeah. And, and don't forget, infrastructure is a productivity enhancing investment. Yeah. Well, let me let me reframe that. Should be a productivity <laughs> Can be, enhancing yes. investment. So in other words, it's it's worth it's worth doing yeah. if it alleviates some of these bottlenecks mm -hmm. and some of these supply constraints. If we can have better infrastructure that enables the economy to mm -hmm. operate at a higher capacity, then this is actually deflationary yeah. in the longer term. Mm -hmm. So so I agree with the I agree with the sentiment in the on the on the assumption that it's not urgently needed yeah. and that there are the competing use for that capital and capital equipment specifically not just not monetary capital yeah. is being used in the productive ways elsewhere then yes let's let's the private sector do its thing because they're all making sensible investments you would hope uh, if it's not sensible in, in investments and it's stuff that's desperately needed and will bring big productivity enhancements, then no. Mm. So that's <laughs> talking out of both sides of my mouth, but yeah. I think that's that is the nuance that is that is is needed here. Government is the only entity that can do certain things, correct? Like roads and, generally speaking, hospitals and and this kind of stuff. Um, and you definitely want them to put the foot on the accelerator mm. when other areas are, are, are waning. Um, yeah, but it's it, th this is the tricky thing though. You, you, have, you have decisions that are being made increasingly through a political lens <laughs> rather than yeah. a return on investment lens. And that's where things get a little bit dicey. And that, that is and that is the $62 question. I was going to say, you know, infrastructure is either really desperately needed or is really good at buying votes. Yes, and yep. that uh, and that that can be often the case. I just thought it was a, you know, I, I think, and this is why it's a weird situation to be in because any any reduction, so the RBA is trying to slow growth in demand or or reduce demand overall, but but not trying to cause negative you know economic growth. So trying to slow the growth of demand. And I think that's the challenge is you know what I'm asking the radio all the time. You know, so this this data is out. What does it mean? 
And, and normally it's kind of relatively easy, right? The economy is growing faster. That's good. Unemployment's coming down. That's good. Or the reverse, you know, things are slowing. That's bad. In this case, it literally is one of those bad is good and good is bad. We are, we are through the looking glass, right? Strong mm-hmm. economic growth is good, but it also means more likely we're going to have another interest rate increase. And so you kind of got this weird, you know, trade-off at this part of the cycle where, you know, what's good for, for some is not good for, for all or vice versa. And I think that's, to, or even even to your point, actually, I, I will say, and this is a bit controversial, even about that productivity enhancing stuff is like, yes, we want those things to happen, but the RBA wouldn't mind putting that off a little bit if it meant we could reduce aggregate demand for a little, and not not forever, but for six or twelve or eighteen months until we get through this point, and then you can get back onto the onto the wagon. So there's kind of that idea of, you know, at, at some point they're saying, please don't spend, please don't invest, please don't, you know, not not entirely, not everybody, and not all, everywhere, but. Just, just a few of you, just, just pull back a little bit. Don't, don't buy the extra coffee. Don't go and buy the new shirt. Don't go and build a new bridge just yet. Do it, sure. But keep the money in the back pocket. We'll do it later. That's kind of the, you know, the very thing they're trying to get us to kind of wake up to. It's, you know, the old uh, Glenn Stevens, but before Philip Lowe, you know, Glenn Stevens' jawbone, right? The idea of, and even Phil Lowe, there was a great, we've talked about this before, a great, I think it was The Shovel, um, article, the satirical kind of website. Who, they, yeah, they, and there's trying to channel Phil Lowe back when he was governor saying, I won't use the exact words because it's a little bit blue, but effectively, for the love of God, you people, if you don't stop, I am going to kick your backsides. Like, and it was kind of that idea <laughs> of like, I've told you and I've asked you and I, I've told you what will happen. Now it's your call, but you kind of know what's coming, right? It's the naughty kid who knows they're going to get smacked and does it anyway. It's like, well, what did you? What, what, can, what can I do now? I don't have a choice, right? You, you, you put me in this position. Um, and I just thought, you know, at some level, I just, I just liked the fact that someone was having, you know, we've been doing it for ages, but it turns out Jim Chalmers, doesn't make this required listing. He may now because we are the number one listener podcast according to this one website. But, uh, but you know, <laughs> the, the, the absolute absence of care um, fiscally across you know governments, plural, current and previous. Uh, I just I was just pretty encouraged to hear the IMF come out and say, you blokes and girls with a vote, you could help if you really wanted to. That'd be kind of nice and probably appropriate. And I thought, well, yeah, it's about time. Mm. it's it's i think it's there are certain subjects this is one of them where it pays to get really basic and stand back Mm. and and we talk about aggregate demand and all these sort of times and i I think too often they just get flung around Mm -hmm. not not in your case but in the media certainly (laughs) where it's just like does anyone even know what that means like explain that to me and i'll also i'm gonna i'm gonna really dumb it down here I think as a country, we're all on the same page as wanting to be wealthier. Mm-hmm. And I think by wealthier, we just basically mean that we can have a higher standard of living, more stuff, more services, cheaper. And when I say cheaper, let's mm. just get rid of the monetary unit here. And I just mean I'd have to work less for it. So for every <laughs> hour of work that I do, mm-hmm. whether I'm a hairdresser or an investment banker or a surgeon or a firefighter or whatever, I want to know that I can get more bang for my proverbial buck, my, my, my hour spent in labor. Yep. So why is it bad that the economy, quote unquote, is growing if mm. that is meaning more goods and services and activity? Well, it's a bad thing because we might be having more stuff, but if it's more expensive, it means, again, just to really dumb it down, and this is this is going to be really obvious once you hear it, and everyone's a very significant proportion of our audience. It's certainly the case for me. Mm. Would 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 empathise with this or sympathise with it? Which is, well, I'm working as hard as I ever have, and things have been more difficult. So mm. you know, great unemployment's super low. You know, great GDP is going in the right direction, but I'm poorer. I'm I'm poorer on under that very basic definition of what I mean by by wealth, yes. which is yes. I'm having to put more hours in to get the same stuff that I got a couple of years ago. In fact, uh, you know I'm getting about fifteen percent less than I was on average because <laughs> three years ago. Up. Yep, because prices have gone up. Yep. So 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 then you, then you have to sort of say, well, okay. How do we how do we stop prices going up? And you know the, the Keynesians at at the RBA would go well. We're going to we're going to make the cost of capital more expensive, and that actually makes that actually makes 
some sense. Even without a central bank, that would probably be the case organically anyway because there's more demand for capital because we all want to do stuff. We're all feeling confident. And, you know, demand increase, exceeds right. supply. The price of, of whatever you're talking about goes up. It gets, In this case, it gets rationed to those who are prepared to pay most for it. Exactly, yeah. Yep, absolutely, yep. absolutely. So where I'm all going with this is that it's it's it all makes perfect sense except <laughs> that it it does – presuppose that a lot of the spending and borrowing that is funding that spending that is happening is for not useful ends yeah, is not yeah. for an ends that will increase my wealth as as I've as I've described it yeah. and I think that's frankly true we've come out of a period where there's all kinds of stupid stuff you know unicorn tech companies <laughs> bleeding cash with a WeWork <laughs> office and a foosball table it was like madness like where did that money go it disappeared is where it went it yeah, got yeah. It was in- incredibly poorly invested that's the kind of thing that you 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 don't want yeah. um the 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 so all of the issues that we're dealing with now are more a consequence of what happened five years ago. This is this is sort of the the, the tricky thing. And it, all, I, it always is, by the way. That you're you're always you, we are literally reaping what we sowed. That's how this thing works: is the decisions yes. made that create the conditions that then unchecked go to create these outcomes take years to to really properly, you know, ferment into what we have now. Absolutely, and 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 I'll just come back to. The, the point that I would make is, is that I don't think price rises in and of themselves, I think we automatically go a bad. And so it's going to be, I've tried to sort of labor this point before, but it's not easy to do, which is, yes, when you're talking about in aggregate and in a way where it's sort of just continuing to, to go in that direction and out of whack with the effort and work and capital investment that is required. Mm-hmm. That being said, price rises uh, and price changes are an incredibly potent and important signal. It should be that if the price of wheat is going up, say, right, a fundamental staple in, in so many different things, that that would encourage more farmers to plant more wheat. Mm. Like you, you need that. Without the signal, you're like, well, I'm not going to – why am I planting more if I'm, if I'm just going to increase supply – and there's no extra demand. I'm just going to push prices down. So this is where it gets. This is where it's such a blunt and dumb instrument in so many ways. Mm-hmm. Is because there there are certain there are certain things that have real constraints because there's only so much of it in the world and we can't easily get any any more of it. There are other things like wheat and even dare I say coal and oil, mm-hmm. <laughs> which are actually plant like ethical and environmental issues aside. Actually, plant there's, there's tons of them out there, and you would say in a functioning healthy economy that increasing prices fix themselves through the dynamic feedback loops that is the capitalist sort mm-hmm. of system. And this is where I guess I'm, I'm getting into ideological point. <laughs> this is where it gets very tricky is because then you have the council of elders that try to sort of read every single nuance in, in the entire economy and, and, and set one benchmark price against that, mm. saying this is bad because prices are, or increased prices are always bad. It's just why it's so diabolically, diabolically complicated. And, and, yeah, I, I feel as though we have painted ourselves into a corner now, and, and I bring it back to my favourite topic. The, the big elephant in the room is we, we just can't we just can't increase. Pro- we need we know we need to mm. because of some of this malinvestment that's been going on. Mm. But if but the reality is most of that malinvestment has been into property, and if we tank that, we destroy the entire <laughs> what, no, the Australian economy. Literally, yeah, and, and well, world economy really. I mean, the 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 reality is for the average person their biggest asset for those who own a home is their home. Uh, mm. The the ramifications, the kind of concentric circles that come out from from that. Um, it's everything. Yeah, it, it literally is. And, and you know, whether, whether it's literal wealth or, or just the, the perception of wealth and well-being and therefore the amount of money we're prepared to spend, it, it, it literally does kind of radiate out from that central point and that's why it's so difficult to, to get into control. You're absolutely right, mate. I think um, I'm an optimist by nature. We've, I've said that a million times. But I do, and, and why I rant about governments, I think, is because we are in the, we're in the kind of era of, or the, the risk of a whole lot of own goals that were completely preventable. And that's yep. why I guess, you know, you can argue about what governments should do and what this party does and that party does. And there are differences in, in politics and ideology and philosophy. And those, those debates are really worth having. But it's almost at some level, 
the, the abandonment of sensible policy is almost bipartisan. That's probably the most frustrating thing. It's not like there are two really good, deep-thinking political forces that are trying to find the best way through, uh, genuinely the best way through. The combination of kind of the craven self-interest in politics and the abandonment of, of proper policy. And you and I have different, you know, slightly different perspectives on some of these things and, and whatever, but I think we're, we're pretty much on a unity ticket is just that idea of had sensible policies being maintained not even the controversial ones just the reasonable ones uh, for reasonable amounts of time right the the fact that we and, and look hardcore libertarians would say let people do whatever they want if they want to borrow a million dollars at two percent then they're going to get their comeuppance a few years later when rates rise right and that's a view um it's not even an unreasonable view it's one i strongly disagree with but it's not an unreasonable one outside the kind of hardcore libertarian and there are some listening and i don't mean any disrespect um, but outside that, you know, the I don't think it was very difficult to recognise that when rates were at forty-five year lows, that we're never going to stay at that at that level. Encouraging slash letting slash allowing slash underregulating, whichever phrase you prefer, uh, people to go and put themselves in that position in two thousand and twenty-two and twenty-one was just madness. Yes, and, and the lack of serious, um, you know, that the previous treasurer actually. Uh, told APRA to reduce the lending buffer rather than increase it, which should have been done. Um, the the lack of just serious policy, that should be bipartisan policy that you would imagine, it's kind of the hollowing out of the public service, right? The economocrats and technocrats, even, you know, you're, not, you're not a big Keynesian, I am, I'm more of one than you are, but even all those things aside, right? Reasonable people who spent a life in the public service and said, actually, minister, we kind of see what's going on here and thanks for appreciating my expertise because here's what needs to happen. It just feels like the kind of the, ba- the, the very basics of government have been, have been kind of left out or, or ignored for too long. And you're right, I don't, I'm not expecting mm. calamity, but it, it is also true that when you let a, a, you know, take 30-year mortgages plus the reduction of loan valuation ratios plus the reduction of APRA's buffer, um, mm. the ongoing escalation of house prices for reasons of either political cravenness, i.e. more people will vote for me if their prices go up, or lack of care because it just got too hard and we don't have any serious thinkers or not enough in parliament anymore. Whatever combination of those things is true, letting housing get to this point and become this, frankly, uh, impactful. Too big to fail. Right? Yes, exactly. That's <laughs> yeah. how it is, right? And, and, yep. and it always has been to some degree, but making these things to make these things worth do matter this is not a binary it's either it's not a case of either is or it's not it's like at different points in time you had the choice to make this less of a risk component for the australian economy and you chose not to and that's the bit that i think is is most frustrating for me at least you're a bit more uh, strident about it but for me that's kind of the you can argue the toss on the on the edges and where, the, yep. where genuine disagreement is between political ideologies, but fundamental good governance it should have been reasonably bipartisan on 85, 90% of what we've talked about. Uh, unfortunately, most of it was just simply left on the too high pile. Yeah, no, I, 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 we're not a mile apart. It, it, it's a question of incentives, mm-hmm. right? And and the I think a lot of this stuff comes from a good place in that is we want to avoid businesses and families yeah. suffering. Yeah. And, oh, my gosh, we've gotten ourselves into an economic pickle. Let's help you out. Mm. And, it, I mean, it's hard to argue against that sentiment. It's like we, we look to government for that kind of stuff. Yeah. But I think it it's sort of like you, you wrap your kids a little bit in cotton wool because you want to shield them from some of the harsh realities of life. Mm. But there does come a point, particularly as they get older, I'm just going through this because my kids are at that age, where it's sort of like, well – at a point, I'm just lying to you, right? Now, what's what's the more ethical thing to do here? I would say in regards to sort of having an adult conversation with the populace, which is, guys, every now and again, things get a bit exuberant. We all make some bad investments, little mini bubbles form. And, you know, you know what the solution is? We let it fix itself. Mm. So we, we can try and paint over it, but we're just going to have a bigger problem down the track. So I'm, I'm, this is where I, one of the issues I have with Keynesian sort of school of thought, it comes from a good place and it actually comes from a sound uh, intellectual place if, if you feel as though the decisions are completely well informed and executed. Mm. But the trouble is, is that we, I, I, would, I would say this, without all of those things that you listed, without changes in, in lending standards, without uh, structurally artificial low interest rates, without very poor legislation around 
building legislation, all that kind of stuff. You know, we probably would have seen housing plateau at a lot lower level and there might have been a few little corrections along the way. This is healthy. This is a good thing. You know, no one, no, again, no one wants their house price to go down, but it's sort of like by prolonging it, we just put it to a situation where it's sort of like now it literally is too big to fail. And the it's become such a suck on the economy, just a drain on everything. The amount of people that are working their guts out, not for anything productive, their capital's not being put to any productive use. It's just going to service a debt. That they that they took on a few years ago. You know, we drew, we drew all of this consumption forward, and now we're just stuck with sort of having to pay the bill on on all of mm. this kind of stuff. Yeah. When we would have actually been in a better situation if there had been a, a a a little bit of a reckoning with those at the most exuberant and reckless end of the spectrum. This sounds really harsh, but it's where I have the sympathy with the with the more libertarian view, which is kind of like, well, you kind of deserved it. I mean, can you imagine, I've made this example before, but imagine if I had put all of my money into Ripple or some stupid crypto <laughs> token and it had, and then I got wiped out and then I was there whinging for the government to bail me out. No one would take me seriously. But because the asset is different, yeah. because it's property, we do take it seriously, but it's the same kind of thing. And I would, I would sort of, it sound, makes me sound like a real a-hole to sort of say, <laughs> you know, oh, let, let, them, let them crash and collapse. And it's like, well, you, it's, it's the old Charlie Munger thing. Capitalism without bankruptcy is like Christianity without hell. It doesn't work. You need to have that risk, that threat that is there to enforce better decision-making and to course correct when things get a little bit too far out of whack. It's not fun, but generally speaking, it's like anyone who's sort of been prudent and sensible actually don't get punished too much. And we don't create a moral hazard where now the reckless actions of a few have imperiled all of us mm. because, because now it's like, well, we kind of have to bail these idiots out. Otherwise, we all suffer this massive consequence. And- you know, I, I don't know what we do at this point now that's, because it's it's and that's why it becomes well, a problem, right? Yeah. But what we are doing though, okay, what are we doing? Well, mm. we're we're letting more people in than we can comfortably uh, house. Um, we are now. You said thirty-year mortgages, forty-year <laughs> mortgages, I, right? Yeah. You know, I, I can't tell you how and 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 and, and buffer re reductions being limited. We are doing the exact same thing, yeah. and I can I will guarantee you this: that at some point, when things start to get hairy, they'll open up the super. Um, money pot again. Mm -hmm. They'll allow people to do that. They'll give all kinds of tax breaks, all kinds of first home buyer grant, everything that they possibly can, which will represent, again, massive malinvestment, massive inflationary conditions in terms of housing and constraint. It, it doesn't fix. And, it, and I think the, re, the, the false dichotomy here is we feel as though that there is a, a sensible thing that happens and we're all fine and there's no consequences or there's this terrible thing that happens where the reality is it's like, no, there's two crappy outcomes here. Mm. Which one do you want? Mm. And and I would probably say, well, the least crappy one. But it's, <laughs> That's right. It's, it's still going to be crappy, which is probably we have to take our medicine at some point. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. The only the only thing I would I would you know I'm slightly less libertarian than you are. The only thing I would probably just mention in passing on that context is that we're almost we're almost implying. Uh, I think we are actually directly implying that housing and housing purchases and mortgages and other things are. are that very thing we've kind of railed against before, which has become a financialized asset rather than a, rather than shelter. Yeah, and I think yep. I think it's reasonable to investors aside for owner occupiers, I think it's reasonable to not have to. And again, if I think about family members and friends of mine who aren't particularly financially savvy, I've said a million times: you go to the bank and say, "How much can I borrow?" He says, "This much." Okay, good. And that's how much you borrow. Mm -hmm. um, it's harder for us and probably most of our listeners to go back to that stage of naivety where you didn't have that financial literacy and to be able to kind of say. But hang on, you're going to be that. I'm not comfortable paying back that. That's that's crazy, right? Yeah. Most people just don't have that that financial savviness, and that's my that's why I'd slightly break from you in terms of access to housing finance. I think if you know, it's a bit like it's a bit like um, to about sophisticated investors before, right, and that kind of stuff. ASIC says if you want to raise capital from people, you have to give them all this information in a prospectus and all that stuff, so they can make an informed decision. And I think there is some element of, we could say, well, I think you should say everyone, oh, if you want to invest in it, invest in it, who cares? Um, mm. You know, when it comes to housing, my, my general thought is that it's not unreasonable for the biggest purchase people will ever make, the most money they'll ever borrow, 
Uh, I think protecting them from their own lack of understanding and knowledge is probably a reasonable function of a, a responsible society, a responsible government. So I would, I, you know, I, you're right about the, you know, religion without hell uh, analogy, other than um, in some cases, I think you let people make those choices and, and, and bear the consequences. In others, if they're not necessarily financially, intellectually, emotionally prepared to make a good choice, then letting them make a bad choice just because you're letting them make a choice. If we can prevent that, I would I'd be strongly in favor of saying, let's actually help people just avoid those sort of own goals if we can. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I'm not, I'm not, uh, no different on that front. Mm. I, it's, it's, it's not the person I blame yeah. really. It, it's the bank, yeah, frankly. Yeah. I mean, they're the one that lent them. I told you, I went through the experience <laughs> recently, went and saw a mortgage broker. Yeah. My loan, they, they put something together. They, they presented absolutely the best picture right. and, um, and back and forth on a whole, oh, is there a better Baz you can use? I mean, it was, it was, there was lipstick all over the pig of my personal financials, right? All over it. And then they approved it in an hour. No one looked at it. Yeah. It's, come, it's rubber stamp, bang. And it, it's kind of like, really? And if I took Drew down the full amount that they were prepared to lend me, I'm telling you right now and everyone who's listening, I don't think I could pay it. I don't think I could. Not, not, not yet, because I might get yeah. sick or there's a bad quarter or no, I just mean, Everything as status quo. I don't mm. think I, I could do it easily or b- barely at all. God, Lord knows, not if there was another half percent increase in, in interest rates. And you certainly so couldn't borrow is, responsibly. And, but, they, you know, but again, I've just gone up there. And, I mean, I'm not going to, right? Yeah. Because I, I, don't want to, right. I don't want to risk everything. <laughs> but but, but that, that, the, the banks, this is the moral hazard that they are in because they are going, well, if I don't do it, someone else will. And who cares? You know, worst case scenario, I'm going to get bailed out anyway. I mean, that is that is that is the absolute implicit guarantee that is that is going to happen. Mm. So it's sort of that's that is where the issue is, and that is right. That's why I agree with you. That's why they should rate. Why is why are we reducing the mortgage buffers for? Mm-hmm. For goodness sakes, why aren't there more restrictions around money laundering and property? Why aren't there more restrictions around having to disclose? proper accounting for for your applications why aren't what you know they, they just aren't and and whenever that is the case that's where you're going to get these really really perverse kind of outcomes and i mean i, I was saying to you off air matt common i was reading um the C, the cba ceo who's um the the bank has lost market share in housing right and they made a decision earlier in this year to pull back on housing um and his comments were everyone's writing loans below the cost of capital now, let unpack that. What, what does that mean? It means the bank, the bank is borrowing money yeah. from you, the depositor, yeah. or from offshore markets, yeah. or from the RBA, uh, and they're lending it out at a lower rate. Now, I'm not the world's <laughs> smartest financial guru, but- It's probably a bad thing. That's a bad thing. It's not, you, every loan you write, you're losing money on, and they're yeah. doing yeah. it because market share. Yeah. You're like, what? And now they pulled back. CBA was the first to blink on that, but they have they have in all of the banks, and this is what Matt Common was basically saying: is like, well, it's just it's not very profitable. Mm-hmm. Two thirds of their loan book is all in housing at very and, and at rates that that aren't really allow for much profit. We have seen bank return on equity over the last decade half. Yeah, you know, um, we, we, we've talked before about how really, with the exception of CBA, and that might just be juiced for for some other various reasons, but like none of the bank's earnings or dividends have gone anywhere in in five years, because we have all the, the as a country, we've had very great dem- demand for all of our rocks from people overseas. We've sold it to them. We've flung it all into houses. That's what we've done, and the banks have enabled this through through. Policies that in the in a in yesteryear would not have just got across the the, the desk of the of the loan officers. They're like, no, I'm not. I am not approving that. That's that right. is reckless. Yes. Why would I do that for? And again, I would say it's because. Well, who cares? If we don't, someone else will. And even if something goes wrong, we'll get bailed out. That's it. That was the lesson from 15 years ago in the GFC. We they made a movie about it. <laughs> <laughs> that was yeah. that was the last yeah. line of the movie, right? Yeah. I was like, yeah. And 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 we are, yeah. So anyway, history is one damn thing after another. We've learned nothing, and we've we're in a in a more precarious situation now because we didn't take our medicine when we should have. And arguably, you go back to the dot com boom before that, you know. So I don't know. <laughs> on, that, on that bright note. <laughs>
Mate, I don't know how we're going to fix it is all I'm going to say. We, we, yeah. Interest rates keep coming. We don't want to talk about it each week, yeah. but something big happens and we keep doing it. And I just, it, it is just tinkering around the edges. And I, I, I feel as though what tends to happen economically is that we do, we kick cans as long as we can kick mm-hmm. cans. Mm-hmm. But at a point, the weight of gravity becomes so much that it's sort of like, there's just no kicking anymore. And, and I don't know if that's next week or 10 years away from now, but yeah. it tends to be a, there's a collision course, unless there is a course correction, there is a, we're on a collision course. I, I would say. And I, I say that just through the powers of logic and yeah. reason. Just, just for fun, um, I, I don't want to drag this out for too long. You say I don't know what we should do. I'm going to, I'm going to throw some ideas just to try and try and add a bit of a thought to the end of this, the end of this piece. We can kind of go from there. Um, if I was treasurer tomorrow, and this is not a pre-prepared list, so I'll try and kind of I think about this a bit as you do. So um, I'll try and come to, <laughs> I promise it's everything, or maybe even I may change my mind at some other point. Um, First thing I would do, mate, is I would increase the lending buffers on new loans. Uh, yes, now easiest thing it, in the world, isn't it? Um, you, you got my vote right I, away. I would also, um, I would also cap mortgage lengths. Um, I think it just encourages. You, 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 are, you are sending property prices down. You do. I'm no, just, well, just no, so you know well, what you're doing here. Not necessarily right because there's new loans, so it's kind of one of those. It, the, the, my idea would be to stabilise prices i don't mind if they fall a bit quite frankly um because it doesn't really matter as long as you can pay the <laughs> you're, you're not making friends right i know now. i know say it. As, long, as long as you can pay the bills well that's the hit yeah no you're, i'm not and no, that's okay uh, by the way when rates go up when interest go up share prices go down and they, they should and social property prices because they're assets uh, and that mm-hmm. kind of you know the, the pretense of property always goes up i don't want to get into the I don't want to get into the blaming of who says what and what they should do. Just the reality is that the way an asset price should be calculated in the real world is that when the cost of capital goes up, the asset price goes down. It's just the way it has to work in any rational assessment. Oh, I'll just very quickly add, if I'm getting 5% risk-free, volatile, volatility-free in a term deposit, right. why, am I, why am I investing in an asset that's giving me a gross yield of 2%? Like- Correct. That, that that's how you square that circle yeah so um yeah so i would i would uh increase the buffer i would then use the buffer counter cyclically so by the way uh, if rates kept going up i would have no problem with the buffer actually coming down a little over that time and not entirely but just proportionally right if if rates go to 10 percent, there's no point making someone qualify at 15 mm-hmm. right and if but if rates are at one i want them to qualify at six yep you know it, it just matters so um, I'd, I'd put the buffer up, then use it counter cyclically. I would cap a mortgage length at 25 years. I'd go back yep. from 30 back down to 25. Um, it doesn't do anyone any favors except the banks when those things happen. So that's well, a, you probably that's don't want to give a 50 year old a 25 year mortgage either. Like just <laughs> quietly, like you know. Yep. Um, I, I this is this is controversial, but I would meaningfully reduce immigration intake for a period of time until the supply and demand of housing caught up. Um, oh, the easiest decision ever. Yeah. Yep. Uh, regardless of what you think about the long-term, big or small Australia, and that's a whole different conversation. Which again, well, I'm big Australia, mate. We've right, had it before. Right. I mean, I'm a big Australia advocate. I, I, I say, bring us your smartest, your most capable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, let's be, we are strong. We are an immigrant nation. We're stronger for, I'm all for immigration, but you've got to have the, you've got to have the, capacity to yeah. absorb that effectively yeah, yeah. And, the, and the building targets of the government state and federal is ridiculous 1.2 million houses aren't going to get Woeful. in five years time it's not going to happen just mathematically Woeful. they won't have enough trade tradies materials land just it's not going to happen in that period of time no. can it happen over time yes could it happen in that period of time no um so those are those are three very very simple ones mate I don't think it needs to be that much more complex. Um, I would, <laughs> in my interventionist ways, which you don't always agree with, uh, I would simply try for a, for a soft landing by just limiting the upside and letting wages catch up. I, th- I think that's the only thing you need to do. I don't think there is necessarily a need for, despite your point about the further we kick the can, the less far we can continue to kick the can is absolutely true. I think I think stability at this point would be enough to get us out of trouble over the long term. Um, we'd lose a couple of decades of of you know meaningful asset value growth, but that's better than having a twenty five percent crash. That, and then no, no, I, I don't again. disagree. Yeah, that, that is the best way to take your medicine. Of all of the scenarios <laughs> here, going sideways for ten years is yeah. much better than a thirty percent crash in a Great Depression. Like that. Yes, I that's, will take. A, I will take perfect. that. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. So I, and I, th- I don't think that's even necessarily needs to be controversial or difficult. Those things are really really simple to do. You can do them tomorrow. Um, it, it requires no more than that. It, frankly, it would stabilize rents. It would stabilize house prices. Uh, it would mean affordability increases over time. Um, and you could even, even with the buffer, you could increase the buffer slowly over a year, a year and a half. If you want, again, if you don't want to create a house prices tomorrow, you could cap mortgages at 30 years and then 29 years next year and 28 years the year after. These don't need to be fast and hard. But what you need to do is say to yourself, a bit like your version made of, you say regularly, if you're going to design a system, you'd say, what system would I design if I didn't know where I was going to fit? 
Um, mm. You'd, you'd yes. simply do the same in this case, but in a slightly different context, you'd say, what is the best place to get to be? Okay, and then how do we best get there without causing undue damage? And that's what you do. So you design the perfect system or as much as we can get the perfect now. Mm -hmm. You say, all right, well, if I did it tomorrow, I'd, I'd break things. Yep. Over what period of time can I introduce this without having a massively deleterious impact on society? I don't even care about the housing market. I'm talking about society generally, right? Because I'm worried more yep. about um, unemployment than I am about house prices. So I don't want to cause circumstances that, as you say, lead to a recession or depression. So you just simply say, what do we need to get to? What are the mistakes we've made? Let's get there at an appropriate speed which doesn't which gets us to the right place because that's important but doesn't jeopardize prosperity on the way uh, what else would you add to that Matt? is there anything else you, you kind of low-hanging fruit uh i mean i'd have to think about it but they're they're just all no-brainers i mean I, I i do i do think though i mean while i 100 percent agree i think that you would have people throwing tomatoes at you oh, yeah, gotcha. and being very yeah. angry with you mm -hmm. because under your scenario prices aren't doubling in the next seven years right like, no way yeah. i'd suspect even if you avoid a hard landing you're still going to see some a bit of a fall there uh, yeah. you know it just you 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 draw you take away those drivers and well what else is there every time i read an article lately it's like prices are up huh why uh population it's, that's you know, yeah, that, so it's, of, of all the own, you know what's weird of all the own goals that one is the most transparently obvious and avoidable yeah. Like, you know, like, does the longer mortgage terms? Yes. Okay. Mortgage buffers? Yes. Okay. Uh, that, that literally was like, hey, we've got five houses. Let's bring in six people. But that doesn't, I know, isn't that clever? It's like, it yeah. just, it, it, it drives me, it drives me mad, mate. That, that one is, I like to give politicians benefit of the doubt, generally speaking. I like to believe they're there for the right reasons, overwhelmingly. I like to believe that they genuinely care about good policy. That is just, you know, I, I use the example, I think I've shared on the podcast before. If you're if you're in a football stadium, and you have more people coming into the stadium than you had seats for, you might you might build a new grandstand, but you'd keep the people outside till you finish the grandstand. <laughs> you wouldn't yep. you wouldn't let them in and then try and build the grandstand while they're all milling around and you know wondering where to yep. sit. It's just, it's not hard. Can I just put that because I, I heard this from Matt Barry originally, um, CEO of Freelancers Big Property Bear, but I, I I do I do think it's a really nice way of framing it up because big numbers kind of become meaningless at a point yeah, yeah. the amount of people that we're letting into the country is equivalent to a canberra yeah every year so a canberra this is more than a canberra mate because we're already we're half a million people as of the end of september it is actually it is more than yeah so i'm just looking i googled it canberra population as of 2022 is 460 000. <laughs> there you go so, so we're, we're, we're already that. we're already there i've got nine and a half to go two and, a half and here's go. here's the thing too it's not like all of these people are evenly pro ridering themselves around the country. Sydney and Melbourne yes, yeah. are like doing the heavy lifting there yeah. for whatever reasons, right? Yeah. There's someone who lives in Sydney, it's clearly the best city in, in, in the country. I mean, that's an objective fact. But, but you know, that's where people are coming because that's where the jobs, the opportunities, yeah. the social networks, Families, the, the, communities, the, the, exactly. yep. all yep. of that kind of stuff is, is here. So you've got a Canberra coming into... Uh, these predominantly these two areas yeah. it just it doesn't work can you it imagine doesn't. can you imagine if you said to everyone in Canberra guys um, sorry we're evacuating the city uh, can you just jump in jump in your cars or jump yep. in the train or a bus uh, drive three hours north and then mm -hmm. get out and find somewhere to live yep good luck it's <laughs> literally what we did I don't it's what we did yeah it's mad I don't I, I can't even find the words because it just it, it's so obviously stupid yeah that yeah. I can't even normally I can do the whole yeah well I might be thinking this on the other hand that there is no on the other hand here yeah it just genuinely is not well the other hand is the other hand is your and I hopefully are coming from the point of view of a what's better for the country longer term yep if you're coming from the view of I've got 12 investment properties I'm geared to the eyeballs. <laughs> Bring them in. Bring them in, you know? Yeah. And and we know that there's this not an insignificant number of, of the population of those. Like, actually, it might be madness on one level, but mm. personally, for me, yeah. this is a great yeah. thing. Personally, for me as a politician, this is a great thing too because more and more of my constituents are feeling wealthier. I'm feeling wealthier. I mean, GDP if, goes up because there's more people GDP money goes in the economy. Up. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It looks good. It's it looks good. It's to kick down the road, isn't it? It, it is. That is that. Show me the incentive. Yeah. Speaking of Charlie Munger, and I will show you the outcome. Right? Yep. That's the incentive. Yep. And yep. so, anyway, it's 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 a madness. Motley Fool Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener.
I own shares in Treasury One Estates, which I'll say up front. Uh, they announced during the week they're going to spend $1.4 billion Australian, about $900 million US, buying a, an American winery called Dow. It's spelled D-A-O-U-O, but it's pronounced Dow. Um, the fastest growing winery in the US last year. Uh, very significant mid-range and luxury portfolio, which, which Treasury's for a long time been saying, we want to get a commodity wine and into this kind of higher price stuff. Why? Because the margins are better. Makes obvious sense. It's exactly what Treasury should have been doing. It's actually partly why I own shares because the strategy is really smart and to the extent they can execute against it, it makes sense. Uh, we should also mention they, they um, hopefully will get let back into China soon. It seems like there's been a bit of a breakthrough, which is nice. So I'm, I'm happy about that. I'm less happy about the acquisition, mate. And I wanted to raise it and talk about Treasury in particular, but talk about the, the kind of the acquisition in general. And I, I guess I, I, I try to be skeptical without being cynical. They are going to buy this winery and they say by buying the winery for the given price, so you know, $1.4 billion, there's think an earn out thing if, if uh, sales and profits keep growing. And they say, if, if and when they buy this, it'll be earnings accretive. In other words, it'll add to the company's profit in the first year. And in the first full year of the acquisition after it's been done, it should grow profits by between, so high single digit percentage, I think they said. So sort of seven, eight, nine percent is kind of the expectation. Now, the company's market cap is about 10 billion, round numbers might be closer to nine. Um, so they're spending you know, a very large chunk of change, about 15% of the current market cap. They're raising capital to do it. And I'm a bit nonplussed by this. So I guess I'll, I'll, I'll give you my thoughts, mate, and you can tell me what you think. Now, it's, it's still a buy. I still own it. It's still a buy for us. So be really, really clear because sometimes members get confused when I criticize things with companies I like. I've done it before. Um, it's possible to think the company's worth buying and also not agree with every single decision management makes. And my general concern is this, Ram, and I, I, want, I want your thoughts. They're going to spend $1.5 billion. They're going to issue more shares to do that. We've said before, debt is temporary, but, but you know, equity is forever. So they're issuing more shares to do this. And in the first full year, the profit's going to grow by single digits, single digit percentages. Now, I'm going to say to you that for most companies, that's a growth in the, mid, in the kind of high single digits is about what you'd expect from a above average quality business just doing its thing. You know, some, you'd love more, some will be less. Um, you know, we'll lose will do five or 6% on average, probably. Some better businesses might do 10 or 11%. Treasury is big, it's pretty dominant, it's pretty widespread, it's pretty saturated. So, you know, high single digits is about what you kind of expect. And I guess I, if I was, if I was framing a marker on this one, I'm gonna say, well, hang on, if you're half decent as a business, you'll be able to do that sort of growth anyway, organically with what you've already got. If you're gonna spend a billion and a half dollars and raise two thirds of that, about a billion dollars from shareholders to make this happen. And all you're really offering me is an average year's growth out of that. Is it too cynical of me, mate? Am I, am I expecting too much to say, that's a lot of risk you're taking and a lot of permanent dilution for the chance that you might get a relatively average moderate level of success? Because no. yeah. if you don't, get, if it doesn't do as well as you hoped, if this business that has a, you know, massive amount of you know, wind in its sails right now, if the wind starts to flag a little bit and that business isn't as good as you think, it's just a, it's a really, really, really big bet using permanent capital for a relatively modest result. And it feels a bit to me more like, frankly, empire building than it does genuinely trying to deliver long-term compound growth for current and potentially new shareholders. Yeah, but I get to be on the board of a much bigger company. <laughs> I'm much, I'm much more important as one of the top insiders in that business, right? My pay remuneration goes up. You know, it's better, it's better to be the CEO of a ten billion dollar company than a ten million dollar company. I can tell you that much, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's it's absolute madness. I. The other thing is as well, all of this. The, the the expectation is I just opened up the presentation as you say mm. mid to high single digit EPS accretive so you know the, the profit on a per share basis should be boosted by anywhere between five and eight or nine percent mm -hmm. um, assuming our forecasts are correct right that's and to be fair it could go better so I don't want to I don't want to suggest that's the that's the cap but it's also not a floor either. Now, why be cynical on that? Why? Why? Well, I, I think you don't need to be cynical, but you need to be healthily skeptical, skeptical. because yes. when you look at 
history, which is always a useful thing to look at, and you look at the, with the, the history specifically of acquisitions, the rule of thumb here is that about a third of them add value, a third of them don't do anything. Right. It's kind of like a bigger company, but as a shareholder, it hasn't really done me any favors. And a third destroy value. So I've only really got, there's a one in three chance here that they're right. Statistically. Yeah. yeah. So now, if, if this was an acquisition that could give us 20% growth or significantly enhance our moat um, or, or put us in a much stronger strategic position for the long term mm. that it's going to enable or lay the foundations for much further, stronger growth down the track, maybe that's, that's, that's worth that kind of risk. But to your point, it was like everything goes as we hope and I might get 6 or 7% extra profit. And if, if things don't go as well as I like, and let's remember how quick things can change in this industry. Remember what happened to Treasury Wine when China decided, yeah, no, nah, we're not going to let you come in anymore. Mm-hmm. Like, overnight, stroke of a pen, the business just like billions of dollars up in smoke. Now, I'm not saying that's going to happen, but that's the nature of business is that unexpected stuff happens all of the time. And so I often, as you know, I love I love asymmetric bets. This strikes mm-hmm. me as asymmetric in the wrong direction <laughs> yeah, that's right. heads i win a little bit yeah. tails i potentially lose a lot that's nah. right right you've, you've got to, you've got to believe if your if your median case is mid single digit growth you've got to believe there's a very 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 good chance of something approaching that and a, a very 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 small chance of this going badly and i have to say yeah. when you're buying a branded consumer goods business i have no yeah. i have no doubt that dow is a great business and i'm sure the brands are great and i'm sure the market, consumers love it and all that sort of stuff and you know and i don't know dow as well as i should if if dow was buying penfolds and saying we think this is going to be a good business i say well they're probably right this is a super long-term brand super premium people love it i get that but anytime you're buying something that relies on consumers continuing to maintain the current beliefs they have that that in itself is a, is a massive risk that if I was buying, I'd, I'd be knocking 20% off the price on that basis alone. I'm not yep. going to pay full price for something that requires me. I mean, think about, do you remember, you remember um, Surf Stitch? Yes. Public ASX listed business, right? It owned yep. Billabong, Rip Curl and something else. Remember, it was a Quicksilver. I can't remember now. Um, I owned shares for a short amount of time in that one. It was a disaster. Um, but that was one of those businesses where simply just consumer taste changed. Yep. And and the, you know people of our age around will, will fondly remember some of those brands and the kids listening will be like what the hell is that you know and I don't I, <laughs> I, I would love to think I was cool enough to say they'd talk about these other brands I'd love to name those brands that kids these days love but I got no idea you probably know I don't um, no. but that idea of if you're buying a business that requires the the current consumer preferences to be maintained hopefully grown mm-hmm. but to be maintained you're already mm-hmm. taking risk yep. and then there's execution risk and then there's you know and then and then and on top of that. Uh, I, I just, it just again. I still own the shares. I still think it's a buy. Uh, I'd rather they didn't do this deal. I don't hate it because it should be at least, hopefully, modestly EPS accretive. Um, but I, if mm. they'd asked me, should we do it? I would have said no. What the hell are you people kidding? Why, why would you? Why would you do that? In fact, um, one of the prominent uh, analysts on on uh, Treasury apparently was reported in the AFR during the week and saying, "Why don't you guys just buy back your shares? You've got this yep. great business in Penfolds. It's a cash cow machine." You know, yeah. har- harvest the cash and, and return it to shareholders in some form or other. Uh, I'm not entirely sure that's the only or best answer, but it's a very good alternative. Um, yep. We'll pay a dividend. Right. Increase your dividend. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Versus uh, putting $1.5 billion on the line, including new capital. That's the other thing, right? We're being diluted yeah. if you don't take up the rights. So you kind of, they've got to go over a barrel a little bit. Actually, one, one quick wrap for them. Um, this is our announceable rights offer, which I absolutely love. And yes. I don't want to get into the jargon this late in the podcast, but effectively, most companies say, we're raising capital. You either send us some money or you get diluted. You choose. Mm-hmm. That's pure overall. That is literally, well, hang on. Now I've either got to send you more cash that I didn't plan to, or you're going to tell me I own less of the company as a result. Mm-mm. Those are two pretty crappy outcomes. The corporation law allows it. And it's probably appropriate because these are very large big businesses with very diverse shareholder bases and there is, you know, it's a bit like the compulsory takeover rule. When you get to 90% as a takeover, you get to buy the last 10% on a compulsory basis because make sure every single investor agreed to do the deal so you could take it over would be crazy. Um, but so that's non-renounceable. These guys actually said, we're going to have renounceable rights. In other words, you can send us the money. You can let it lapse if you want. That would be a crazy outcome given the choice. Or those rights will be available for sale 
on the ASX. In other words, you can get some money for those rights so you don't miss out on the upside potential. And so for all of my criticism of, and it's not even really a full-throated criticism because maybe it works. Just seems not a very good risk-adjusted bet they're making, but at least they're doing it the right way and allowing those rights to be traded on market. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll give them credit for that too. And look, it may work out well. I yes. mean, there's one in three situations that it, that it does and we're all we're all better off. I I feel as though the a lot of heavy lifting usually gets done in terms of the rationalization in terms of <laughs> synergies. Yeah. You know, it's like in other words it doesn't really make two two plus two if that equals 4 and I'm twice as big, but there's uh, twice as many shares or, you know, there's like the maths can work out in a way that I'm now a shareholder of a much larger company. But, you know, when it all boils down, I'm still I'm still getting the same shareholder benefit. Mm. That's that is that is sort of pure ego. So it, it, unless, as I said before, it's actually doing something that I couldn't do myself easily or quickly, then it, w- why do it? The, the types of companies that can resist that pull of empire building, as you call it, <laughs> and focus just resolutely on capital management, which is just the core skill of any leadership team, is that when you find those ones, they just they just provide such incredible value for shareholders, even if they tend to be smaller companies. I mentioned um, Jumbo in a recent pod, not to, not to harp on that again, but they could have easily gone into a thousand other things yes. and they, they yeah. didn't. Yeah, you know, um, uh, and, and in fact, they're much smaller and less known than they probably could have been. They, I'm sure they could be a much larger a company, but a much less profitable one, and one that's delivered far fewer returns. The ability to just be resolute in your understanding of what it is that creates value yeah. for your customers yeah. and your shareholders, yeah. and only prosecuting the things that strengthen that, and saying no to everything else, is exceedingly rare in the corporate world. And and I think that's why their stats are the way they are, that, that most acquisitions don't work out. So anyway, I wish them well. Mm. It looks interesting. They always look interesting and maybe, maybe it is. <laughs> that's right. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I feel as though less is often more. I like it. Mate, speaking of less being more, we mentioned at the beginning of this pod about the challenge for small caps in the current market. We've kind of talked about this on and off over the last little while, a long, long while actually. It's probably been a tough... Is it getting close to 24 months? Maybe close to a tough two years, I think, for, for some small cap companies. Um, yep. And it kind of seems to... Well, I mean, you, you, you specialize more in this area than I do, but, but it seemed from the outside that they're really getting buffeted pretty hard by changing investor expectations and demands, uh, both in terms of what they're being, I'll say forced. No, nothing's, nothing's forced, but they're, they're feeling forced to do and the way the share prices are responding. Hmm. So there's there's a the way I framed it on Strawman the other day is there's there's a few different buckets I think here in small cap land. There are the companies that have absolutely going for growth but have been pretty restrained in their again their capital management. They've been well-funded, attractive unit economics, i.e. there's real attractive gross margins in the business and there's a very clear pathway to cash flow positivity or they're already there. And they were kind of overshadowed a few years ago. It was the companies that were just going for growth at all costs and, and didn't really matter. Um, and, then, and then the world changed and the, the access to capital just dried up. They couldn't raise at the same prices that they, they could before. No one's going to give them a loan. Mm-hmm. And they're left in a situation where it's like, well, you might have the biggest total addressable market in the world and you know, a half decent product and the rest of it. But if you can't fund your operations and no one's going to lend you any money, mm-hmm. you're in big trouble. Yeah. And so when you look at the real disasters in that area, it has been a case of the tide going out and then like, oh gosh, we, we are not a viable entity under our current structures. We have to cut our way to greatness, which is always a difficult <laughs> thing, yes. thing to do. Yeah, so Alcidian is, is, is the uh, case in point at the moment. This week I had shares drop 25%. This is a great little company that do really cool software. They've in, in, like founded in Adelaide. In, like in their short history, they've done a lot of good stuff, but they overreached. They overextended themselves. Okay. And then they did this really weird, poorly timed, poorly communicated raise. They raised $5 million. <laughs> like which a bad just, combination. 
Yeah, I just really, and then all the markets are, whoa, I didn't even, it wasn't even on the radar. I thought you guys had plenty of cash. What's going on here? And it's just a road, like once trust goes, once confidence goes, everything goes. And I feel as though it, this is going to sound contradictory. In small, in, when I look at the market, I think by far and away, the best opportunities are in small cap. Like, Mm. And, and a lot of like even Howard Marks and others are sort of saying that in the US markets as well. It says there was a, a lot of a period of excess and exuberance and it's being washed out now and a lot of it deserved to be washed out. Um, but there's been a lot of companies that actually, that you've got a good product, you've still got a good opportunity. Maybe you overextended yourself. Okay, that's, that's a fair criticism. Maybe you didn't write the ship as quickly as you needed to. Maybe you made some investments that really weren't prudent to make at the time. But they're probably at incredible value right now, despite yeah. those challenges. The d- tricky thing is, is that within that mix, you've also got companies that actually you're never going to be viable or, or it's so far off into the distant future that requires so much funding and assistance as to you know, make it a very poor journey for shareholders. And that's going to be the tough thing to sort of pick apart at this, at this point in time. These are the great, when you have these big market ructions, if you want to call them that way, that, that is that is the stock picker's best friend because that's when you get indiscriminate selling and people are really jittery, opportunity abounds. Mm. But you've just got to be careful not to tread on a landmine because there's a lot of things that look like opportunity that may just be disasters waiting to happen. And they only look quote unquote cheap in reference to a former irrational price. And the price may still be incredibly irrational and ambitious today, right. even though it's at, you know 20% of what it, what it was. Um, so I, I think that's that's my lay of the land at this point in time. I think that this is 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 very challenging, but a a a necessary cleansing. If I can come back to our original sort of discussion, yeah, and one that actually presents for the discerning investor that presents op- opportunity. But right. yeah, I don't see it resolving anytime soon. They, they, you need com- market needs to see companies that can stand on their own feet and can continue to drive growth without the assistance of free and easy money. There's plenty of companies out there that I mentioned to you off air, Redbubble, I think might be an example of this. Incredible revenue growth there for a period, but it was basically bought that revenue growth. It was incredibly high marketing expenditure. Is the business viable? Are the unit economics attractive in and of their own right without that spend? In other words, you take away all this easy money, can you continue to grow? And moreover, can you continue to grow in a way that is sustainable? I don't I don't know, actually. Um, but for those that can make the transition and pivot, things are gonna things think I would imagine in, in three to five years' time we look back going, Wow, I could have bought that at that price. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. And that's the hard part, isn't it? Because at some level, by the time by the time the, the financials are obvious, they don't need the money, and when they need the money, the financials aren't obvious. And trying to get that balance right is really tough. I mean, it, yeah. you know, the uh, a bloke with a good idea who then says, "Well, I need some money to make that work," uh, doesn't have any, a unit economics even at that point are woeful because you've got to get to scale at a unit economic level and then at a company level. And then eventually you become Woolworths. But that that journey on the way through starts with someone saying, "I'm going to go and you know I'll use the Woolies example just for fun. I'm going to go and you know buy rent a premises, buy the fittings, buy the stock, try and make it work. You know, for the first year and a half, you lose money, lose money, lose money. Eventually that store becomes profitable, and then you might open a second one, and that cut, that's hard because you've got to get that up and running. And and eventually yep. you look back at Woolworths, and go, well, of course it was always going to be Woolworths. It's Woolworths. Why would it not be? Yeah. You know, yeah. and, but for but for a large amount of that journey, you know, Woolworths itself wasn't wasn't certain and those who would be the next Woolies aren't necessarily in that place either um, yep. and fall by the wayside despite having similar plans and objectives. It's, it makes it hard for an investor to work out at what point to jump in. Is, yes. Do I, do I assume from your comment, mate, that that kind of unit economics is, for you at least, the ticket to the dance? That That's, you know, you, before then too risky, after that starts to become reasonable, even if it's not profitable. Is that is that where that crossover is for you? Yeah, it's a big part of it. I mean, I want to see a I get really um, I'm a I'm a simple man. You know, bring it back to basics here. Do you actually have a legitimate product here? Not some bunch of jargon strung together that sort of sounds good. I don't know really what <laughs> you do, idea. but like yeah, yeah. when you see a business who has very good organic sales growth and very low churn. In other words, a customer buys it and sticks with it. And you can actually put prices up year to year. I mean, that, that is that is a very strong signal in in my um, world. Yeah, and it, it says that there is an opportunity here, and that maybe you should invest more 
to bulk up the sales team, to bulk up production, right. to bulk out new offices in different geographies because there's a there's a there is a wonderful sort of opportunity there. Um, so I, I yeah I think I think you 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 need those things at the core. And for one of the ones I've had plenty that have just they're down in the dumps at the moment. And I think the problem has been more at the fixed cost line. Mm. And I think they did extend themselves too far. I think they did bulk up too much. I think they did make some acquisitions that weren't there. And they're all negatives and I'm not trying to sugarcoat it. But what keeps me in those large number of those ones, if I'm being honest, probably a lot of it's just like pig-headedness. But, but hopefully there's also <laughs> inertia. Yeah. yeah, inertia. But, but hopefully there's, there's also a recognition of that, yeah, despite those mis- missteps, there are there is a genuine product here with a genuine opportunity, and if they can if they can navigate through a more challenging funding environment, they will emerge out the other end and and it's game on. The the one other point I want to make is I think the given the lay of the land that I presented, we may or may not agree, but if you did agree, <laughs> you might say, well, why wouldn't I just go for the ones that are already profitable that have made mm. that switch? I don't have to wait for that. And I would say, yes, that's true. But then again, the the market so I'm gonna so laser bond, XRF, uh uh crisis, um uh drop suite, uh, just the ones off the top of my head, small cap growth tech ish kind of companies. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, they've kind of made they've kind of walked through and threaded the needle there. It's just like actually we are viable. We mm-hmm. we we we, uh, in fact, Laserbond and XRF, they've, they've consistently been profitable and paying a dividend and we've grown while, while being able to support ourselves. Great. Yeah, but the challenge is there is that those share prices have held up remarkably well and in many cases are doing great. So it's sort of like, it's back to the point I made a, a month or so ago now. It's like, unfortunately, <laughs> to get a bargain, you need uncertainty. <laughs> uncertainty the com- the yeah, companies right. that look fantastic, yeah. they're, 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 it, it, I wouldn't say it's completely fully in the price. I still own shares in, in XRF and Laserbond and, and the rest of it. Um, but they're not the bargain that potentially exists elsewhere. The ones that are less certain are cheap potentially because of that uncertainty. And that's that's the conundrum. You know, it's very easy for people to go, oh, I just buy the best quality. It's like, yeah, but you might get really crappy returns <laughs> yeah, only right. buying the best quality, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, there's that, that, that's, therein lies the conundrum. It does indeed. And one we will have to continue to puzzle with over the next couple of days until Sunday morning when I'm hoping desperately you might find your way clear to uh, having finished your Ironman triathlon. Just just cool yourself down, have a drink, and then join me for the, for the Sunday morning mailbag edition. Can I count on you? You know you can. I'll, I'll make sure I'll set the alarm for 3 a.m. so I'm well and truly done by the time we're recording. Is that is that 3 a.m.? You got to go to bed or get out of bed? <laughs> no, get out, get out of bed, of course. <laughs> Lift the weights, do what I got to do. Man, the soup kitchen, you know, everything. Help the kids. Nothing like commitment. No, the kids are up at 3 a.m., mate. You're doing something wrong. One of the, uh, <laughs> otherwise, I think that's probably the right thing. Okay, until then, until Sunday morning, thank you for listening. Enjoy the rest of your weekend and fool on. Thanks. Cheers. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. The Motley Fool operates under Financial Services Licence 400691.